for us to understand that protecting nature is protecting ourselves. But the supply chain is going to be damaged if we don't figure out what to do around climate change and what it's doing to our food systems. They do not have anything else to, to eat, so it, it's really threatening, it's really sad. So yeah, I'm really concerned. Hello, you're listening to The Lid Is On from COP26. I'm Connor Lennon, joined by Lara Quinones. Hello, everybody. Happy Saturday. Yes, Saturday already. We've been here for a full week and we are more or less keeping it together. Well, I am. How about you? I'm not really keeping it together. but No, I lied. Neither am I. <laughs> One more week to go. I think we can do it, though. Today, it's all about nature, nature-based solutions. Can we harness nature to tackle the climate crisis? And can we do this without letting governments and businesses off the hook? We're also going to be delving into the world of mangroves and why they're so important. We heard from the actor Idris Elba today. He was talking about food systems and we'll be getting poetic because it all gets a bit prosaic sometimes. That was the sound of the torrential downpour we had a little earlier. It's now very sunny, four seasons in one day. You look quite surprised, Lara. I was. I mean, you are from this part of the world. This is normal. Yeah, <laughs> you said it's normal, but it was literally pouring rain so bad. <laughs> then five minutes later, it was full blue sky and sun and then again it was raining and then well at least we got a beautiful rainbow it was huge and in this big tent we're in luckily it didn't really there was a little bit of flooding for a couple of seconds but it's held up so far <laughs> yeah we got a couple of drops near our computers but thankfully uh they're still alive Yes, we're all still functioning normally. Lovely <laughs> rainbow that you caught earlier. I love the fact you look in one direction, it's beautiful sunshine, look another direction and it's completely grey and yep. scary and ominous. Now the protests did carry on today. We had these big protests we talked about on yesterday's show. Today it was all around the world, including in Glasgow, despite the weather. Yeah. Someone said, well, if you're going to protest in Glasgow, this is what you've got to expect. <laughs> uh, I know you were looking on Twitter today. I don't know if you caught anything, but um, my favorite sign from Glasgow was don't deep fry your planet. Oh, wow. You know what that's a reference to? Yeah. No, I don't. Have you heard of the deep fried Mars bar delicacy from Glasgow? No. My God, we're going to have to try that before we leave. <laughs> deep fried Mars bar served with ice cream. It's kind of wonderful and horrific at the same time. It has about a million oh. calories and I think leads immediately to a heart attack. So make sure that we're near a hospital <laughs> when we try that one. Okay, I think, I think I'm okay. So anyway, back to nature. COP26 President Alok Sharma was speaking a little earlier. He had a recap of some nature-related announcements that have been made today and in recent days. Nature and Land Use Day builds on important announcements from earlier this week. The uh, Glasgow Leaders' Declaration on Forest and Land Use has now been endorsed by 134 countries covering 91% of global forests. Countries from across the world are today setting out their commitment to transform agriculture and food systems through policy reforms. And this includes more than four billion US dollars of public sector investment, which will be leveraged into agricultural innovation, including climate resistant crops and solutions to improve soil health. This technology will be made available to hundreds of millions of farmers. And as has been announced today, the UK will provide £500 million to protect 
over 5 million hectares of tropical rainforests and create thousands of green jobs across Africa, Asia, and Latin America. The UK is also launching a £65 million Just Rural Transition Support Programme to help communities move towards more sustainable methods of agriculture and food production. All of these initiatives support our work towards keeping 1.5 within reach. That was COP26 President Alok Sharma summing up some recent nature and agriculture related commitments. And the UK government made an announcement as well today. They said that 45 governments led by the UK are going to be pledging urgent action and investment to protect nature and shift to more sustainable ways of farming. Now, Lara, you were looking at this today for your story, which is on the UN news page. Uh, tell us what else you gleaned from these announcements. You know, it was pretty interesting to know that, um, remember the forest pledge they made on Tuesday. Uh, it was originally signed by 110 countries, more or less, and now it has 130, which means these pledges are getting more participation from, from other countries. I also spoke today with two different indigenous activists, one coming from Brazil and the other one from Colombia, actually. They're both from Latin America. And uh, with the former special rapporteur, uh, Victoria Tauli Corpus from the Philippines. And she, was, uh, she works in defending indigenous rights and how we can definitely learn a lot from them. Because they are the experts. Uh, did you know that 90% of biodiversity right now lives in indigenous territories? I did not know that. Yeah. So they're the experts and we should learn from them. Okay, and uh, if you speak Spanish or Portuguese, then you can <laughs> listen to that on our Spanish and Portuguese services. And of course, you can read Lara's wonderful summing up of the day on the UN news page. Now, let's talk mangroves. You know what mangroves are? Of course. Of course we have we have them, a lot of them in Colombia. Describe them for me. <laughs> I've never seen one because where I'm from, we don't have mangroves. <laughs> Small trees and shrubs that grow in tropical coastal areas is yeah, what. Yeah, they're like roots. Like you go, you go under you see the, the water, roots, right? and you see the roots. They're like super long, super long, and even um, in some parts of Colombia in the north, you can go at night and they glow. There's like no. plankton glowing. Yeah, it's so beautiful. That I have to see. They're well, magical. <laughs> as well as being magical, they're great examples of nature-based solutions. Powerful carbon sinks like forests or, or seaweed, they can keep CO2 out of the atmosphere. They also have other benefits, including protecting biodiversity, they shelter and nurture marine life, and they absorb pollutants. But they're under threat and they need to be protected. Some countries lost more than 40% of their mangroves between 1980 and 2005, and often this is due to coastal development, countries ripping up those mangroves. This morning I spoke to the president of an organization in Madagascar, Fatswa Rakutrada Zafi, and her network advocates on behalf of coastal communities and for the restoration of natural resources. Just a few days ago, the World Food Programme said that Madagascar could be suffering the world's first climate famine, and this is a famine directly caused by the climate crisis. Ms. Rakutrada Zafi started by explaining why mangroves are so important for her country very important because it's the nursery like everything comes from there and I'm talking on, on behalf of small-scale fishers as I said it is like the fridge and it is the factories of uh, all the marine uh, resources and also it, it protects people from strong winds from storm it, uh, it, uh, it provides them the equipment that they need to build their houses so it has a vital um, importance for 
for coastal communities in general. And do people in Madagascar generally appreciate that importance? Yeah, I think by uh, being the capital, people are not really aware of uh, that vital importance of mangroves, but for the coastal communities, it's, uh, yeah, they are, they are all aware of that. But it's, unfortunately, maybe education and awareness is uh, not sufficient. So that's why, like, when you have uh, a site where people are restoring mangroves, you also have people that are doing extraction just next to those uh, sites. So it means that the education and the awareness activity is not yet um, well uh, developed. So apart from the education, the awareness, tell me a bit more specifically about the kind of projects that you're involved in. Yeah, so within the Mihari Network, we, we are empowering communities in mangrove restoration and planting. So we are training them, we are, uh, we are bringing them in exchange visits so they can see what the other communities are doing, so they can replicate those mangrove models into their villages. And on the other hand, I'm also um, uh, coordinating a national initiative that covers uh, all stakeholders in Madagascar, the government, private sectors, funders, local communities, NGOs. This doesn't exist yet. So inside that platform, we try for those people to work together to coordinate their efforts in the in protecting mangroves and in developing uh, mangrove policy and um, governance on how we can better uh, restore our mangroves in Madagascar. The World Food Programme is warning that parts of Madagascar are on the brink of famine. You must be very concerned. Yeah. Two months ago I was in the south of Madagascar to meet uh, clim climatic uh, refugee, people that have left their village because they, because they, 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 they they do not have anything else to, to eat, so it's, uh, it's, uh, it's really threatening, it's really sad. So yeah, I'm really concerned, and this is why actually I, I'm no, that's why I've, talk, I've talked about, like we cannot, um, like communities are empowered to restore mangroves, but they're also, uh, they're also involved in the destruction of those mangroves because they, there is no compensation. We are not really thinking about the livelihoods, we are just like forcing them to do conservation but it's, we need to think of their well-being and uh, the livelihood. So this is what is happening. And yeah, I'm really concerned about uh, yeah, what is happening in the south of Madagascar. Is the government putting the right policies in place? They are trying to do uh, like support for communities in the, in the south on how they can do like agriculture, how can they, how can they be supported in, uh, in livelihoods. So yeah, the government is quite engaged about uh, the case. Fatswa Rakutrada Zafi, an activist in Madagascar, talking to me about the importance of mangroves and the worrying situation in the south of a country where many are on the brink of famine. Now, this morning I also got to speak to Inger Anderson, the head of the UN Environment Programme, UNEP. She told me that it's in our best interests to protect the planet. We take care of nature. Nature takes care of us. It protects us. It sequesters carbon. It gives us what we need. And sometimes you read in the newspapers that a species has gone extinct. And we need to understand that while it seems like very little because we have about 7 million, 8 million species on this good planet, we need to understand that nature is this finely attuned system. And losing one species here or there may sound like a little, but actually nature is this finely attuned system that relies on each other. And when we begin to lose the, the species here and there, it can cause an overall collapse in the system. So it's very important for us to understand that protecting nature is protecting ourselves. Some of the solutions we've heard about recently include planting, say, a billion trees, planting kelp forests in the oceans. But isn't this 
also another way that we would be manipulating nature. You said yourself it's a very finely tuned system. We haven't had a great record, have we, of, of uh, predicting the knock-on effects of things we do. Isn't there a risk that we could upset things again with these programs? We have to understand that there are about 2 billion hectares of degraded land on this earth, and we all need to eat. And so it is whether we are going to cut down virgin forests or whether we should make that land that is already degraded, depleted and, and fatigued back into uh, working landscapes. Working landscapes for timber, working landscapes for food, working landscapes for the hydrological cycle and working landscapes for carbon sequestration. So bringing back landscapes that have been degraded, that's what the UN Decade of Restoration is all about. And so it's quite important that we that we do that. We are not playing God, uh, because that's kind of what your your question alludes to. To the contrary, of course, what we need to understand is if we do massive monoculture, we just plant the same tree over and over and over again. That's like green deserts. That is maybe good in inverted commas for carbon sequestration. It is very bad for biodiversity. It is very bad. And, and that is not what we want to see. What we see want to see is diverse forestry that can attract the rich diversity of life that forests harbor and thereby ensure that we have good soil health, thereby ensure that we have good local climate and good humidity and climatic optimization for the uh, hydrological water cycle. Is there a risk that companies that are polluting, organizations, countries that are polluting, could say, well, fine, we can just carry on with business as usual because nature will take care of the rest? Well, there is a significant risk of that, right? That greenwashing is an ever-present peril that we at UNEP are very, very much aware of. So, yes, that's why making very, very sure that those highly polluting companies are held to account for reducing their carbon footprint. Planting a tree is not doesn't is not a get out of jail card free uh, to the country. Um, but but what we do need to understand that on the nature side, leaving climate aside altogether, on the nature side, we have a COP, we have a biodiversity convention that speaks to the regeneration of what we have lost. That speaks to ensuring that we have rich diversity. And so this is not planting tree to harvest, planting trees to harvest carbon. This is planting trees because it's good for the planet. Now, it's much beyond trees, and I, I would like to take you a little bit further than just focusing on trees. Nature-based solutions is much broader. We need to bring nature into our cities in the way that we design cities, in urban design, in architectural design. We need to be sure that we understand because our climate is changing that we design cities so that there are depressions where water can be absorbed into the aquifers rather than having it all paved over and it just goes right into the oceans. We need to replenish our aquifers and not flood people in the process. We need to ensure that we plant mangroves that can protect cities and not do concrete seawalls. We need to also ensure that there are parks that can be, and good. many cities are beginning to construct parks that are great for most of the year but become floodplains when they get these high-intensity rains. There's many times the poor people who live in the floodplains. And so being sure that we have uh, the quality of resilience using nature as the absorber of, uh, of nature's wrath that will be coming upon us with, uh, with the ever-increasing intensity of the climate. I was Inger Anderson. 
the head of the UN Environment Programme, looking ahead to the next big UN conference on biodiversity. The celebrity boost of the day was supplied by Idris Elba, star of The Wire, Luther, Suicide Squad and many more. He took a quick break from filming the latest series of Luther to speak at a press conference held by the International Fund for Agricultural Development, a UN agency that works to address poverty and hunger in rural areas of developing countries. He said that he'd come to Glasgow to raise awareness of the ways that the COVID-19 pandemic has heightened inequality and hunger, even in the world's richest countries. One of the things that strikes me during the worst times of the pandemics is when we saw Western countries with their civilians lining up for food. These are families that have homes, that don't have farms, that live in the West, live in LA, live in London, live in England, and they're lining up for food because there was a food shortage. Now that wasn't because of climate change, it was because the supply chain was damaged. But the supply chain is going to be damaged if we don't figure out what to do around climate change and what it's doing to our food systems. That image of all those lines of people in LA lining down with families waiting for food is a reality for us in the future if we don't find ways to tackle this issue now. That's what I'm doing here. That's why Sabrina and I work with IFAD because IFAD for a long time has been focusing on small scale farmers. Small scale farmers deliver 80% of the food that we eat. It doesn't, we don't recognize that when we go into Sainsbury's or Marks and Spencer's. It's not obvious to us, but it is obvious to them because every year when they put their crops in, the crops are lower because the rain's different, the soil's different. And one day we're going to go to Sainsbury's, Marks and Spencer's, and the food's not going to be there. So for perspective, that's why this needs to be amplified. That was actor Idris Elba, a goodwill ambassador for the International Fund for Agricultural Development and the next James Bond. I was just seeing if you were still awake there, Lara. I have no idea if he's the next James Bond. He could be, right? I don't know. I'm not big on this uh, celebrity thing, to be honest. Well, look, OK, we're not going to end with celebrities, but we are going to stick with artists, poets this time. How's that? Mm, sounds good. Right, it's about time we had a bit of poetry in this yeah. podcast series. The Poetry Society invited award-winning young poets to the Green Zone for an event called Where Were You When the Seas Were Warming? And here's Renee Orleans-Lindsay with her poem A United Solution, which was inspired by the climate crisis. The solution isn't go green. Rather, it's quite a marshy brown. All the colours in the spectrum thrust together pulled into braided harmony. Might the sagging glaciers of the Himalayas, dribbling into the Yangtze and the Indus, be nourished with kitschy Korean neoprene, those gutsy, ebullient woman divers grasping cold abalone? The waning coral reefs, crumbling into chrome before your eyes, your child's eyes, might they be galvanized by Ghanaian manganese, buzzing phone chips life in breath? It's coalition we need, London's taxis fueling Lima's arid faucets. China's offal coursing through phones rather than waters. Tit for tat, recycling, redistribution, and if everyone made some contribution, today's teetering future might be solid, stuck. The poet Renee Orleans-Lindsay with a call for coalition. 
And if you want to hear all of these panels, whether it's Idris Elba, Poetry Society or anything else, you can see it all on the Blue Zone and the Green Zone website. There's also coverage on YouTube. You can look at the United Nations website, the UNFCCC website. Have I missed anything else, Laura? Uh, no, no, no. That's about it. Yeah. So that's pretty much it for today. Week one is wrapped up and done. We have tomorrow off. So tonight, Laura's going to be eating a deep fried Mars bar with ice cream. <laughs> I doubt that. Maybe a little, a tiny piece. Just, yeah, just, just a tiny piece because otherwise we don't want to have to send you to the hospital. We need you fresh and active for next week. So enjoy Sunday. What's your highlight for tomorrow? My highlight for tomorrow is going to be able to sleep Correct until I answer. wake up. Well, I won't be bothering you tomorrow, but I no. will see you on Monday. Probably, yes. Probably. There you go. That's a, a ringing endorsement. No, I will be back anyway. Hopefully, Lara will be. And have a great Sunday and see you Monday. <laughs>